Welcome to the second wave of quarantine evidence-based radio. I'm actually recording from a new room, um, but still a room in my home. (laughs) As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Let's start tonight by talking about a good step in the fight against Omicron. Researchers at the University of British Columbia have provided the first molecular-level structural analysis of the Omicron spike protein. They published their work this week in the journal Science, and it details a near-atomic resolution image using cryptoelectron microscopy. Microscopy is one of my favorite words, by the way. (laughs) Understanding the molecular structure of the viral spike protein is important as it will allow us to develop more effective treatments against Omicron and related variants in the future, said lead author Dr. Sriram Subramanian, professor in UBC's Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. By analyzing the mechanisms by which the virus infects human cells, we can develop better treatments that disrupt that process and neutralize the virus. The team were able to visualize the 37 mutations on the spike protein. 37, that is a big number and why we're having such trouble. This is three to five times more variance than in previous uh, strains or variations than in previous variants. Um, And so they found that there are several mutations which form new salt bridges and hydrogen bonds between the spike protein and the human cell receptor known as ACE2. These increase the ability of the virus to bind to human cells. Though interesting, they also found other mutations that decreased the strength of this bond. Overall, the findings show that Omicron has greater binding affinity than the original virus, with levels more comparable to what we see with the Delta variant, said Dr. Supermanian. It is remarkable that the Omicron variant evolved to retain its ability to bind with human cells despite such extensive mutations. Unfortunately, (laughs) uh, more like than remarkable. Um, (laughs) It is unfortunate in the extreme that it has so many variations, which means it makes it so much harder to... uh, have defenses against, and yet it still does what all the other uh, COVID-19 variants and the original do, which is make people potentially very sick. Unsurprisingly, they found that the variant shows increased antibody evasion. Unlike previous variants, Omicron does not respond well to monoclonal antibody treatment, which is another big blow. 
even though that particular uh, treatment is very expensive and not available to everyone. So, um, again, this is not... uh, (laughs) I am, I promise at some point, if people are interested, they can listen to it. I am eventually going to make a uh, long-form essay uh, recording on the topic of you're mad at capitalism and not at science. Um, And so monoclonal antibodies are one of those things that have been more available to people with more money than they have been to uh, regular people and thus makes them uh, a frustrating, if effective, treatment. And so testing found that the virus was actually able to avoid completely five out of the six strains in experiments. They also found increased evasion of antibodies from both the vaccinated and unvaccinated COVID-19 infected patients. Notably, Omicron was less invasive, my emphasis, of the immunity created by vaccines compared to immunity from natural infection in uninfected in unvaccinated patients. This suggests that vaccination remains our best defense, he noted. Overall, they found that these mutations have added up to give Omicron its increased transmissibility. The team next plans to use this new information to work on more effective treatments. An important focus for our team is to better understand the binding of neutralizing antibodies and treatments that will be effective across the entire range of variants and how those can be used to develop variant-resistant treatments. And so that is really important. That is the kind of uh, end goal, holy grail, uh, insert metaphor here um, of... um, of being able to have vaccines that work against, uh, especially COVID-19, but also other, um, you know, we can use the lessons we've learned against COVID-19 in dealing with COVID-19 against other new viruses that might prop up, uh, because they will, unfortunately. And of course, this is also really important because as people continue to be infected, we will continue to see new variants. And so developing broad spectrum treatments is really the only way to combat this back and forth between variants and treatments. Because speaking of uh, people who unfortunately may become disease reservoirs where new variants can develop, New research published in the journal Nature Medicine suggests that millions of people may be at risk for Omicron despite being vaccinated. And so people who have been inoculated with a two-dose regimen of Sinovac, a Chinese-manufactured inactive vaccine used in 48 countries, 48 countries are as susceptible to the Omicron variant as those who are basically unvaccinated. They found pretty much no uh, resistance at all. Um, And so analysis of blood serum from 101 individuals from the Dominican Republic 
where the vaccine has been used showed no production of neutralizing antibodies in response to infection with Omicron for those who had received the two-dose regimen. Now, antibodies did rise when individuals were boosted with the mRNA vaccine from Pfizer-BioNTech, but the levels produced by these individuals compared with samples stored back at Yale showed only a similar level of antibodies to people who had the two-dose regimen of the mRNA vaccine, which, as we know at this point, is not really enough to prevent infection from Omicron, and that's why getting a booster uh, is so important. They also found that those who had previously been infected by other strains of COVID showed little immunity. And so they found that neutralizing antibody titers for Omicron were decreased by 7.1-fold and 3.6-fold compared to ancestral and delta variant, respectively. So ancestral is the original strain of COVID-19. Akiko Iwasaki, a professor of immunobiology at the Yale School of Public Health and senior author of the paper, notes that booster shots are needed for those populations that have been primarily inoculated with Sinovac. They might even need a second booster. Booster shots are clearly needed in this population because we know that even two doses of mRNA vaccines do not offer sufficient protection against infection with Omicron, Iwasaki said. She noted, however, though, that antibodies are not the full story when it comes to immune response immune system's response and that other parts of the immune system can help prevent severe disease. But the problem is, is that we are trying to not only be able to stop people from getting severe disease, we are trying to actually stop the spread because as the spread continues, more people who refuse to get vaccinated or who cannot genuinely for legitimate reasons are continually exposed potentially. And so as much as being able to prevent the most severe disease is very important and very good, the end goal still really needs to be that we are able to make this that makes this virus stop being highly transmissible. And so, yeah, it is um, very hard to continue to deal with this. Um, But she goes on, but we need antibodies to prevent infection and slow transmission of the virus. Sorry, she said basically what I just said. Um, and so, yeah, uh, very much a unsurprising um, thing is that we really need to work on transmissibility, not just uh, the actual severe disease effects. Though, obviously, so battling the severe disease effects is very, very important. Um, you know, 
there's lots of uh, anecdotal stories that I've heard about people who have gotten sick and have had doctors say that if they had not had their three doses or even their two doses, that they would have gotten much, much sicker potentially. Um, and so, yeah. Um, and so, uh, it turns out, and this is again, not particularly surprising, uh, that it seems that much of the vaccine reactions that have occurred and that have been talked about, uh, everybody talks about how they've had reactions to the vaccine. Um, I did not have any reactions to either or any of my vaccines. I got all three of them and I was completely fine for every single one. And I guess I'm just luckily this time was less susceptible to the uh, nocebo effect. And so a nocebo response or the nocebo effect is when a placebo or other harmless substance is given to someone who assumes that it will have side effects. And so this can lead to anxiety-induced effects and the mistaken attribution of common, nonspecific, ailments like headaches to the placebo. When looking at various trials for the vaccine, they noticed that not only did trial participants who were receiving the vaccine complained of side effects, but also a large number in the placebo group. And so that is uh, not terribly surprising given all of the hype about the, you know, common side effects of getting the, um, getting the vaccine. Um, I know everybody has talked about it. I know lots of people who said that they had adverse reactions. And again, um, I don't want to say that no one has ad has real honest adverse reactions. Um, people definitely do. There are definitely people who will have a strong immune response. There are people who absolutely have underlying issues or just underlying general physiology uh, that isn't, you know, any kind of pathology, just the way that their body works, they will have an actual reaction. So I don't want to uh, make this sound like it's that nobody had genuine physical reactions. Um, but this new study led by Harvard researchers and published in JAMA Open Network looked at side effects data from 12 high-quality randomized clinical trials that compared various COVID-19 vaccines against placebo. The trials included adverse effects reported from 22,000 578 placebo recipients and 22,802 vaccine recipients. Their data suggests that 60, that 76% of systemic adverse reactions such as headache, fatigue, and headache after the first dose and 52% after the second dose were, again, from the nocebo effect. Julia Haas, PhD and investigator in the Program in Placebo Studies 
at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, which I think is awesome. I did not know that that existed before today um, or before this week, I should say. Um, And that is so cool. I want to learn more about what they're doing because I find that the placebo effect is fascinating because even the people who are actually getting um, a placebo effect, it's not that they are doing it because they're neurotic or because they are just, um, you know, susceptible to people uh, telling them things. It's not about any kind of defect um, in people's thinking. It is just a weird thing that our brain does. Um, you know, the placebo effect is the one that people mostly talk about, which is the one where you can basically, uh, you know, it's the one that complementary, quote unquote, uh, but I prefer the term alternative. Um, I almost slipped there. Um, alternative medicine is built upon is the placebo effect, which is that if you basically tell someone that something is going to help them, then a lot of times it does, or at least it makes them think that it does. And then when it reverts to um, the mean, then they um, are quick to say, oh, well, this treatment that you gave me clearly helped my headache. Um, even though, you know, headaches have a natural course generally, and they do go away at some point. Um, so yeah, but it's a big thing that people, um, should be studying and there's been all sorts of really interesting ones. So in fact, you can even tell people that something is a placebo and they will still end up having effects potentially, um, And so the same is really true for the nocebo effect, that if you tell someone there could be side effects to this, then they are potentially going to uh, note those side effects. And some of them might be things like people get headaches. And if you get a headache right after you get a vaccine, because you know that vaccines can cause headaches, you're most likely going to say, aha, the vaccine caused my headache. And it's, you know, it's not even really at a fully conscious level necessarily. And so, uh, again, our brains are weird and they don't do things in intuitive ways a lot of times, um, even though it's funny to say that your brain does not work in intuitive ways. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, um, your brain is constantly lying to you, but that's another story for another day. Um, and I've mentioned that before on several occasions. And so um, Julia Haas notes that adverse events after placebo treatment are common in randomized controlled trials. Collecting systematic evidence regarding these nocebo responses in vaccine trials is important for COVID-19 vaccination worldwide, especially because concern about side effects is reported to be a reason for vaccine hesitancy. Um though I suspect at this point, uh, I suppose there's probably, that's probably still true. Um, I continue to become more and more frustrated and cynical about, uh, people who are vaccine hesitant. Um, 
A lot of pregnant women still aren't getting uh, vaccinated, which is terrible and really upsetting. And again, uh, we talked about it, I think, last week. But if you know someone who's pregnant and hasn't gotten the vaccine, please, 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 uh, you know, point them in the direction of the CDC's uh, latest findings. Um, You know, just tell them that they are much more likely to have complications if they don't get vaccinated and they end up getting COVID uh, than if they get vaccinated. Um, And so, yeah. But getting back to this. Uh, So the researchers found that after the first injection, over 35% of placebo recipients reported systemic adverse reactions, such as headache with fatigue, while 16% reported a local reaction, such as pain or redness at the injection site. In contrast, 46% of of vaccine recipients recorded systemic adverse reactions, and 67% noticed a local reaction of some sort. After the second injection, adverse reaction went down among the placebo group, 32% and 12% respectively. However, in the vaccine group, the numbers increased with 61% and 73% respectively. And so here, the researchers concluded that nearly 52% of those symptoms were due to the nocebo effect. Nonspecific symptoms like headaches and fatigue, which we have shown to be particularly nocebo-sensitive, are listed among the most common adverse reactions following COVID-19 vaccination in many informational leaflets, said senior author Ted J. Kapchuk, director of the program in placebo studies and the therapeutic encounter at um, BIDMC and professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Evidence suggests that this sort of information may cause people to misattribute common daily background sensations as arising from the vaccine or cause anxiety and worry that make people hyper alert to bodily feelings about adverse events. Now, Kapchuk, Kapchuk uh, and his colleagues have contributed to a growing body of evidence which suggests that full disclosure of placebo treatment, which he calls open-label placebo, can actually help improve chronic conditions without any nocebo effects. Some doctors disagree, believing that it may cause harm to tell patients about potential adverse effects, but Kapchuk believes it's ethically necessary to inform patients of these possible effects. Medicine is based on trust, said Kapchuk. Our findings lead to suggest that informing the public about the potential for nocebo responses could help reduce worries about COVID-19 vaccination, which might decrease vaccine hesitancy. So again, basically, if you tell people, look, we did a trial, and a bunch of people who didn't even get the vaccine got these side effects. And so it's not a huge, you know, it's not just people who got the vaccine who had side effects, but people who got the placebo also got side effects. That that can help give people a better sense that this isn't going to be something that is really hard on them and that they will actually be able to have confidence in it. And, you know, I think as with all things uh, related to humans, that people's mileage will vary. 
Um, this might be really helpful for some people. Uh, for people who are anxious, it might still make them uh, very much be worried about side effects because even if people in the placebo group got it, that doesn't mean that they won't. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's interesting. I I personally am on the side of telling people the truth. I think that it makes sense to say, look, this is what happened in the trial. And lots of people who got the placebo also had these effects. So chances are you might get these effects, but they probably aren't actually a adverse reaction. They're just a natural reaction to getting this, um, you know, vaccine or medicine, which you have expectations about. But again, it's... It remains to be seen how well that will work out. So we are now going to move on. Ugh, I know I keep ending up having the first half be all about COVID. I'm sorry. I, again, wish we didn't have to talk about this, but I thought today these stories were particularly interesting. Um, so I definitely wanted to talk about them all. Um, just as a very quick aside, uh, I, I definitely hear people who have been talking about the uh, ridiculous things that the uh, CDC has been saying, um, especially about, oh, isn't it great that uh, the only people who are dying from COVID who have been fully vaccinated had four or more comorbidities? Um, I think that is outrageous and awful. And I know uh, that they truly did mean that as an assurance to people. And the fact that they didn't think that that would upset people in the disability community is wild to me. Um, I just, I don't get it, man. <laughs> uh, it's, it's very frustrating. And um, I understand the sentiment, but you're the CDC. Don't say things like that. Um, just, just don't, just don't say things like that. Um, uh, so yes. Um, I mean, the, the advice is the same, you know, get your vaccine, get boosted because it does give you really good protection. Um, but it's also, uh, kind of a slap in the face once again to the disability community to have that sort of thing happening. Um, so Yeah. Okay, let's move on. Like I was saying, let's move on from the ever-present dark cloud that is COVID-19. And we are going to move on to talk once again about the not-so-humble tardigrade. Um, but first, what we are going to do is we are going to take a break and do some show promos and some PSAs. And when we come back again, we're going to be talking about a tardigrade a moss piglet, a sea pig. Ah, oh, so good. All right, please do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, Women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. 
Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton, so come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. And we are back. Once again, you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And, once again, we are talking about tardigrades. This story is quite interesting, uh, because the researchers' conclusions are actually being doubted by many others. Uh, And so it's an interesting case study. Um, I think, though, that exploring how science can sometimes be contentious is important. And this is especially true of the world of quantum physics. Um, (laughs) There is a lot going on in quantum physics. And so a group of researchers recently took a tardigrade and placed it onto a superconducting qubit or qubit. Um, I think it's qubit, but I like quibit. Um, anyways, in order to attempt to combine the worlds of quantum and classical mechanics. They claim that they succeeded in entangling the tardigrade with the qubit. To be clear, this is a preprint paper, so it has not gone through peer review yet, 
Uh, it's currently hosted on Cornell University's archive.org server. Um, and it may take a bit of a beating when it does attempt this important step uh, before being published in a journal. I think it's of I think it's very cool to start thinking about interfacing quantum things and biology, but with the right claim, said Clarice Aiello, a quantum engineer at UCLA in a phone call with Gizmodo. I don't think the experiment qualifies as quantum biology. Physicist Ben Brubaker wrote a long explanation of what was actually achieved, according to him, via Twitter. And so basically, he uh, had a very long explanation. It's good. Um, and so if you want to read the whole thing, uh, Ben Brubaker. And so it's good. But basically, it comes down to that he just doesn't believe that they've done these really, the really important, crazy uh you know, next generation bit, which is the actual entanglement of the tardigrade itself with the um, qubit. I think that he was basically like, at best, they entangled it in the same way that the qubit is entangled with the silicon chip below it. And so at the end, though, he did write... Vlatko Vedral, one of the authors, is a talented and creative theorist whose work on other subjects I admire immensely. Also, it's okay to write fun papers about tardigrades in cryostats. I just wish the authors had not presented their work in such a misleading way. And so, yes, it is fine and fun to write papers about tardigrades. <laughs> So let's have a very, very basic refresher on quantum entanglement. Um, this occurs in nature, but when we're talking about it, we're, we're talking about it in a lab. And so this is where two particles are isolated, usually using lasers, and then are entangled such that knowing information about one particle lets you know information about the other particle instantaneously, even if the second particle is billions of miles away. Um, we always have to mention that this is uh, what Einstein called spooky action at a distance um, and felt very cranky and uncomfortable about. <laughs> um, so the team, featuring researchers from Singapore, Denmark, and Poland, chose the tardigrade because of the fact that they are extremophiles that can go into a hibernation called cryptobiosis, where they desiccate, expelling the moisture from their bodies and basically ceasing functions until more favorable conditions return. Uh, basically, usually until they are um, in some sort of water again, where they can um, be able to live once more actively. The main problem is that systems which we can control well on the quantum level are well isolated from the environment and at very low energies, in other words, extremely cold, said study co-author Rainer Dumke, a physicist at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. 
we had to find the right quantum system, but also a suitable life form. The team took tardigrades collected from a Danish roof gutter in 2018 and placed them into cryptobiosis. They then placed a single tardigrade onto a quantum bit. They reported that the tardigrades coupled with the qubit due to a change in the system's resonant frequency. They further suggested that the tardigrade qubit system was entangled with an adjacent qubit on the larger silicone chip. But again, most other physicists say not so fast. Douglas Nadelson, a physicist at Rice University in Texas, wrote a blog post that the tardigrade was no more entangled, again, with the qubit than the silicone chip. Aiello points out that quantum biology measures the internal dynamics that define quantum behavior in living things. So, for example, some researchers think birds use quantum mechanics to see magnetic fields that help them navigate. Aiello notes that they did not look at the potential changes of the tardigrade, but rather simply the resonance frequency of the qubit. Thus, it lacked a confirmation that there was a real entanglement and not just a change in the resonant frequency caused by any of a number of other factors. The researchers do acknowledge the shortcomings of their experimental design, though. One of the criticisms was that we did not produce useful entanglement, which can be exploited, for example, for computing, Dumkey said. This is true, since we are not able to measure the tardigrade system on its own, but only the coupled system. He added that measuring the tardigrade alone is beyond our present technological capabilities, but certainly something we plan to attempt to do in the future. And so, again, if they are actually able to prove entanglement, that would be a huge leap forward for the technology, which does continue to blossom in a new and fascinating, into a new and fascinating technological innovation. So definitely there is a future for quantum computing and qubits, but uh, a lot of people just don't think that they're quite there yet in terms of having really fulfilled what people, what the authors are saying in the paper. Uh, they think that they've jumped to conclusions that are not supported by the evidence is really what it comes down to. It's not that they're lying. It's not that they're not, uh, you know, doing this work in good faith. It's just that other physicists think that they're drawing the wrong conclusions from the data. But on a semi-unrelated note, the paper also claims that they revived a tardigrade after 420 hours at sub-10 millikelvin, or almost negative 500 degrees Fahrenheit temperatures, and pressures of 6 to the 10 minus 6 millibars, and set a new record for conditions from which a complex life form can survive. So that's pretty cool. But we already kind of knew that tardigrades were the best when it came to that sort of thing. And so, yeah, tardigrades are still at the top of the heap. Let's move on now to a completely different question. It's something you may or may not have even thought of before. Honestly, I can't think that I ever thought of it. How can whales eat by gulping huge swaths of krill and water without choking or drowning. It seems weird, but it's also kind of an important thing to know. 
because like humans, whales have access to both their esophagus and their upper airway via their mouths, both their upper and lower airways, actually. And so researchers report in current biology that lunge-feeding whales have an oral plug in their mouths that moves backward to seal off their upper airway during feeding, and that their larynx closes to block the lower airway. The plug prevents water from entering the lungs and drowning the whale. It's kind of like when a human's uvula moves backwards to block our nasal passages and our windpipe closes up while swallowing food, said lead author Dr. Kelsey Gill, a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Zoology, once again at the University of British Columbia. Lunge-feeding whales include fin whales, humpbacks, and blue whales, and they feed, well, by lunging at high speeds towards their prey, usually krill. And so they end up with a mouthful of water and krill. The water is strained through their baleen, leaving just the nutritious and hopefully delicious krill. And so the researchers specifically looked at fin whales and found that oral that the oral plug must move in order for the whale to be able to swallow, and that the only way it can move is towards the back of the head and up, blocking off the nasal passages while the whale swallows. In conjunction, cartilage closes the entrance to the larynx and the laryngeal sac moves up, effectively blocking off the lower airways. We haven't seen this protective mechanism in any other animals or in the literature, a lot of our knowledge about whales and dolphins comes from toothed whales that have which have completely separated respiratory tracts. So similar assumptions have been made about lunge feeding whales. And so it turns out that lunge feeding whales are kind of a lot more like humans. Um, I mean, we're both mammals, so that's not completely unsurprising. <laughs> uh, and so What's interesting is that presumably we could do the same thing if we were much more coordinated uh, and had much, much uh, faster reactions. <laughs> and so it turns out that this, con this anatomical configuration is key to their ability to feed in this way, which in turn is a key component of how they can grow so big. Bulk filter feeding on krill swarms is highly efficient and the only way to provide the massive amount of energy needed to support such large body size. This would not be possible without the special anatomical features we have described, says senior author Dr. Robert Shadwick, a professor in the UBC Department of Zoology. Much of what we know about whale anatomy is from dissecting beached whales, which can be problematic to complete for instance, before the tide comes in. However, in 2018, Dr. Gill and her colleagues were able to source whales in Iceland by gathering tissue that was not being used for food at a commercial whaling station. I know, it's very sad um, and complicated because obviously uh, people have traditional life ways, but ugh. But it did give them the ability to find out this. So just note that obviously all of this is very complicated and um, <laughs> fraught. And so uh, she noted that working with live whales, 
would be great, but that it would require advanced technology for creating a safe-to-eat and biodegradable camera. Because basically they were like, wouldn't it be great if you could have a camera and then just have the whales swallow it and then we could see what happens all the way down? (laughs) And so the team will continue to study this system that includes a small esophagus, which has to somehow transport hundreds of kilograms of krill to the stomach in less than a minute. Uh, and so, yeah, whales are amazing. Whales are weird, but amazing. Um, and so obviously the work will inform conservation efforts as well. And they will continue to explore if whales have other comparative behaviors like coughing, hiccuping, or burping. These are the important stories that we need to know about. Um, <laughs> Humpback whales blow bubbles out of their mouth, but we aren't exactly sure where the air is coming is from. It might make more sense and be safer for whales to burp out of their blowholes. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I find that charming and adorable in the extreme. Um, yeah, whales are just so good and we are terrible people who have not uh, supported them in their being amazing and living their best lives. Um, And it's not like whales are the only animals that we're doing that to or who are um, amazing. But, you know, they're one of those really iconic species where people are actually a little more willing to say, yeah, we should actually try and uh, make up for our prior mistakes. So, okay, let us move on, though. Uh, We are going to stay in the water, and we are going to go into the deep. And we are going to talk about a new record for a squid. So, Alan Jameson of the University of Western Australia and Michael Vacconi of, of NOAA's National Systemics Laboratory weren't looking for squid. They were actually looking for a World War II Navy destroyer, the USS Johnston, which went down in the Philippine Trench. The two were diving on a possible wreck site in a manned submersible submersible, when they noticed a big fin squid at approximately 3.8 miles below the surface. 3.8 miles, with an M, below the surface. The squid are easy to spot because they have very long black fins uh, that trail behind them as they swim. And they have kind of a, um, they have kind of half triangles um, on other side, on either side of their mantle. Um, So they have a very definitive shape. And interestingly, the squid observed actually didn't have um, another, another, um, form of the tentacles. And so they should have tentacle filaments and a slender terminal arm that uh, flow out from behind them. And they couldn't really see it in this, and it might just be the video quality, but they suggest that they may have been contracted or even not yet developed. Um, And so the previous record for finding one of these squid was just under three miles down. And they also observed several serrate octopuses, usually referred to as Dumbo octopuses, um, at nearly the same depth as the big fin. 
And so this was only the second time the octopuses had been seen at such depths. And so it suggests that the first sighting, which was in the Java Trench, was not a fluke. And in fact, again, even though the video quality isn't great, these octopuses actually seemed to be a different species from the first one sighted. And so at this depth, the pressure can be as great as 600 times that of sea level. So once again, cephalopods surprise and delight with their ability to survive and thrive in different and apparently extreme uh, conditions, including the depths of the Hadal region um, of the ocean, which is basically the very, very, very bottom of the ocean, um, where everything is exceptionally dark and the pressure is exceptionally high. Um, and where we used to think not a lot of things existed because it was so dark and so cold and so uh, pressurized. But we have been pretty amazed to find that there is a lot of things in the deep sea that we didn't realize were there before. Okay, let's switch from sea to land and talk about another really interesting find. Archaeologists have identified what they believe are the oldest surviving drinking straws. The straws, which are long silver and gold tubes, are over 5,000 years old and were most likely used to drink beer from a communal vessel. I say identified rather than found because they were actually uh, uncovered in 1897 in the Mykop Kurgan, in, which is in the Caucasus. And so they were recovered from a large burial mound, which is one of the most famous Bronze Age elite graves from the region, and contained three individuals along with hundreds of fine grave goods. And so this was one of the um, large burial mounds or drumlins or um, that are found pretty much all across Europe. Um, there are... They're found in, um, actually, I think they're mostly found throughout Europe. I was going to say that some of the mounds in America are also, no, some of the mounds in America are actually, um, they are indeed burials. So uh, that was a practice in the Americas as well. Um, obviously, people in the Middle East tended to build uh, more monumental things because, uh, they just had different uh, cultural touchstones, but um, yeah. And so you find these burials all throughout, um, actually Eurasia, I should say, because um, you find them in uh, China and other places as well. And so the eight tubes, each over a meter long, includes, including some with bull figurines that attach to the stem. Um they had originally been con considered scepters or even poles for a canopy. They are now at the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg. And so a re-examination by a team from Russia and published in Antiquity posits that they were indeed drinking straws. 
A turning point was the discovery of the barley starch granules in the residue from the inner surface of one of the straws. This provided direct material evidence of the tubes from the Makop Kurgan being used for drinking, said the lead lead author, Dr. Victor Trifonov from the Institute for the History of Material Culture, Russian Academy of Sciences in St. Petersburg. I'm sorry, I've just realized that the Makop Kurgan, Kurgan is the word for... (laughs) These burial mounds in uh, Central Europe, Central and Eastern Europe, um, and in uh, Eurasia. And so um, in that area of Eurasia where, uh, you know, it's Russia and uh, Eastern Europe. And so, yeah, Kurgan it's, is the actual word. So it's the Makop Kurgan. Sorry, I just put that together um, just this minute. Sometimes you are just reading things and writing things and not even realizing what you're doing. Um, So sorry about that. And so they could not confirm that the barley had been fermented, but they still suspect that the straws were used for drinking beer. And... That's because this is consistent with other early civilizations, such as the Mesopotamian culture of Sumeria, which used such straws from the 3rd millennium BCE onward. And in fact, there are also art pieces depicting multiple long straws placed into communal vessels, which would allow people standing or sitting nearby to imbibe. Both Sumerian and the Mycop tubes feature metal strainers to strain out the impurities that would have been found in ancient beer. If the interpretation is correct, these fancy devices would be the earliest surviving drinking straw to date, said Dr. Trifonov, as they are over 5,000 years old. But while they'd be the earliest extant straws, seals from the Fertile Crescent crescent dating to the 5th through the 4th millennium BCE depict people using straws to drink from communal vessels. So um, in the sort of ancient area of Iraq and Iran, a lot of what we, um, a fair amount of what we know about the material culture comes from these seals. Um And so they had cylinder seals and other seals. The cylinder seals are the kind of really famous ones that they, you know, you roll it and then it shows a little picture. And um, we've actually learned quite a lot uh, from cylinder seals that are found in this region. So I always think that's really cool that they kind of accidentally told us a bunch about their uh, (laughs) civilization through just these tiny little everyday objects that they would use to mark, um, you know, uh, mark things as being from them. And so, yeah, very cool. And so in addition to the probable straws, a large vessel was found that would have allowed for eight drinkers to each have seven pints of beer. Now that sounds like a lot, but ancient beer was a lot less potent than modern beer. Um, And it was definitely made a lot rougher, shall we say. Um, And so it would have had a lot more impurities, as they noted, which is why you needed a strainer. 
Um, and so another really cool thing about this is actually the geographic separation between the two areas where these straws have been found. The finds contribute to a better understanding of the ritual banquet's early beginnings and drinking culture in hierarchical societies, said Dr. Trifonov. And so the find suggests that this civilization had deep ties to these southern areas where Sumeria and other early civilizations thrived. And of course, that's something that I've always talked about, which is that Ancient people were absolutely uh, connecting with one another. There were absolutely trade routes. There were abs- There was absolutely cultural exchange. Um, you know, the idea that you didn't go anywhere and never had any exposure to anyone other than in your village is obviously something that I think most people have given up on at this point. I think most people understand that uh, even ancient people were uh, moving and connecting and trading with others. Um, you know, we can tell that you find tin that came from Spain in, uh, you know, Denmark and things like that. Um, I don't know if that's a specific one. Uh, I know that I was watching something about tin from uh, Spain the other day, and I'm not sure if Denmark was exactly where it was, but that's sort of a thing. Um, so don't quote me on that. And one of the other things it suggests uh, is that they may have conducted elaborate royal funerary rites, as this was a common use of such straws and vessels in Sumeria. Before having done this study, I would never have believed that in the most famous elite burial of the early Bronze Age Caucasus, the main item would be neither weapons nor jewelry, but a set of precious beer-drinking straws, said Dr. Trifonov. So yeah, beer-drinking straws. Very cool. And a cool way to end tonight's show. So you have been listening to Evidence-Based Radio, and I thank you. Have a good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.